Hello, 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 a thousand hellos, and welcome to another episode of Across the Dinerverse, searching for the heart and soul of America, one diner at a time. How are you? I'm John Murphy, writer and producer on the CBS Science and Technology series Innovation Nation, which airs Saturday mornings, and please check your local TV guide for airtime in your area. It's a great show. I think you'll really enjoy it. And now I travel the country interviewing people over triple cheeseburgers, pineapple smoothies, and bloomin' onions. It's a terrible Australian accent. Anyway, I talk to people about their lives, their hang-ups, and how they're dealing with the quagmire that is America right now. Right here at the top of the podcast, I want to give a big shout-out to one of the show's patrons, Elena Andrews, who dropped me a note saying, I just binged. 11 episodes in a row. Wow. Driving 10 hours from Ohio down to Auburn, Alabama for a family event. They were awesome, but I really got into the true crime series about the Hoyt murders in Nebraska. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you very much, Elena. I really appreciate that. And if you haven't checked out that true crime series yet, look for Love and Murder Parts 1 through 5 which are episodes 16 through 20 on the podcast show site, thedinerverse.com. That's thedinerverse, all one word, dot com, or wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Podchaser, whatever. And if you'd like to become a patron, just like Elena, please visit my Patreon page at patreon.com backslash dinerverse. And for as little as three bucks, you can ask me questions or send me comments about the podcast Throw out questions for me to ask other people coming up on the show, get exclusive behind-the-scenes photos and content, or ask me to record a greeting on your smartphone. I swear I will absolutely do it. This week's episode comes once again from Cosmo's Bistro on the famous Route 66 in Glendora, California. And Cosmo, the owner, opens up the place once a week to a 12-step recovery program for alcoholics, which is truly a public service to those who need help. I met a couple of guys there, both in recovery, and they agreed to share their story. And last week we heard from Les, an old-timer with 47 years of sobriety, and a story was really inspiring. This week we're going to kick it up a notch with a tale of one man's journey that, I'm going to be honest, will be hard to listen to at times. But I promise if you hang in there, you will hear an ending that will make your jaw drop and maybe even get you to think about how God or the universe or whatever you believe in can sometimes do things that are completely unexplainable and magical to give us all hope that redemption is possible, no matter what we've done. Now, I do want to warn you, if you are triggered by discussions of violence, certain hate groups, or racist ideology, Please feel free to skip this episode and come back next week. Otherwise, enjoy the mystery and miracle of recovery, part two, from Cosmos Bistro in Glendora, California. Hello, sir. What's your name? My name's Tim. Hi, Tim. What's your story, Tim? Oh, man. My story is that at one time in my life, I was a pretty messed up character, and um, through the program of recovery, I... uh, Got my act together. So that's why you and Les were meeting here in this restaurant. Correct. Are you from Glendora? I'm originally not from Glendora. I did live around here quite a lot when I was younger. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been all over the United States. 
um, but I was originally born in Covina. Where would you say you grew up as a kid? Most formidable years would probably be Azusa, Glendora, and then I moved away for a while. Before I got sober, I was in all kinds of trouble. What kind of trouble? All, every kind of trouble you can think of. You know, Growing up in my family, I was the baby of my family. Um, my next sibling was nine years older than I was. So I was really the baby of the family. I often said I was an accident, um, you know, because as an alcoholic, that's sometimes how we think. I don't fit in here. I don't fit in in this family structure. Mm. For me, you know, my father came from a working class background, didn't have a lot of economic security, which I think as, as he grew older and became a father and a husband, his one of his main priorities was he was never going to struggle. Um, and that meant he was a workaholic. Mm. As far as alcoholism in, in my family goes, on my mother's side, my grandmother was an alcoholic. On my father's side, my grandfather was an alcoholic. But nobody ever talked about it. So it ran in the family, but it was one of those secrets. Nobody talk they about just, the problem. It wasn't necessarily a secret, but they just didn't talk about it. Um, I remember growing up, my grandmother at Christmas, we used to, well, once I started to get, you know, aware of what was going on, I started to join in, but they would like hide alcohol from grandma because Christmas she would tie one on. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I would see her, I would see her sneaking wine. And as long as I didn't tell on her, she wouldn't tell on me. So as I got older, I started, you know, sneaking in and, and drinking during family gatherings because I felt damn uncomfortable. So it's kind of like mutually assured destruction. So there you had to detente. Yeah. And, and there was a couple of times where uh, she said, I'm going to tell on you. I said, you tell on me and I'm going to tell on you. And how old were you at this time? Probably 10, 11 years old. So you're, t you're negotiating with your maternal grandmother over, you keep my secret, I'll keep your secret, we can both drink and do what we want to right. do. Right. But what started out as a social sort of thing, a social lubricant turned into a social disaster in my case, because mm. I would get in all kinds of trouble, fights, making a fool out of myself. For me, uh, I, I never really felt like I fit in in my family. Ne never felt a part of. And even in society at large, if you want to call it that, or the kids that I was around, all over, wherever I lived, whatever state I've lived in, whatever school I went to, I always felt like an odd man out. And how did you cope with that? Drinking? Drinking, drinking was using other substances. I don't know if we're allowed to talk about other sure. substances, but I definitely did indulge. Okay, marijuana, cocaine, marijuana, cocaine, heroin, acid, heroin, uh, PCP. Wow. Um, you're, well, thank God you're still here. Yeah, I, I have to uh, pinch myself sometimes and say, I when I am around other people that I know have similar backgrounds as mine and who have lived as long as I have lived, which is not very long in the big picture, we're we're lucky to be here. What was the worst for you? When I was a kid growing up. You know, I first went from being a long-haired stoner kid to uh, getting involved with the punk rock scene. And in the early 1980s, the punk rock scene is not like it is today. It was very violent. There was drug use, but it was mostly alcohol. Um, but we did, you know, we would sniff speed and 
take whites and all that sort of stuff. But in, in my case, so since my father was gone most of the time, you know, working, he, he was present, but he wasn't present. He, he was there physically, but that was about it. It was putting a roof over our head and, and whatnot. And me being the youngest person in, in among my siblings, they all had kids, moved out. Um, my brother rode off into the sunset on a Harley. My brother being my primary positive role model. And he was nine years older than you. Right. Um, was shot oh. um, by a black man. And what For what reason? Well, so the, in my head, the story was that they were standing on the corner dealing dope. And it was a dope deal went wrong. Well, recently, probably within the last couple of years, I actually asked my brother, I said, what, you know, I was... Oh, thought, he survived? Oh, yeah. Okay, thank God. Yeah. Um, he still has the bullet in him. Really? Yeah. Inside of it? Yep. It was too close to his spinal cord to be removed. So it went through one of his main arteries in his heart. You know, I, I spoke to him about it, and he said, no, they were just minding their own business. They weren't selling dope on the corner. In my head, because I kind of glorified it, the odd thing is about that whole scenario is, yes, it was a family trauma. But as far as my brother's concerned, after a couple of years, he was done. He was done with it. He had moved on. He moved past it, forgave the man who shot him in his, in his mind. Um, the man was... Uh, Initially, he was arrested. He was tried uh, for attempted murder. Got off on a hung jury, mistrial, and they wanted to retry the case. Wow! And by that time, my brother said, "You know what? I'm I'm done with this. I don't need this." Right. He just wants to move on yeah. with his life. But for me, I think my perception of things was totally different. I mean, this is before the hard, you know, before I got into drugs and drinking. For me, I believe it was a fear-based resentment against black folks. I had this thing in my head that if they're black folks, they want to shoot me. And how old were you when your brother was shot? Uh, about 10 or 11. All right, so a very impressionable age. Right. Did you witness this? No. Okay, you just you just saw the aftermath of it. Right. And saw the pain and, and everything else. So as a 10-year-old, you heard the story, and so you got this fear right. into your head that black people want to kill white people yep which is not right right totally bullshit right but when you're 10 years old it can stick perception. in there. it's perception right so uh, you know so what happened after that well as i said my brothers and sisters moved out of the house so it was me and my and my parents and i had to run to the house in the afternoon and you had nowhere to go with this not really and i didn't really fit in with the people in in the neighborhood where i was living you know, I was a middle-class kid, but I, I never felt a part of them. I always felt, I don't know, lesser than or uh, dirtier than them. I don't know if, if that makes sense. You were but, just insecure. Right. I was insecure, but I was almost, it was like I had a subconscious, you know, looking back at it, it I can see it now. But back then, I, I'm just a little kid. But I didn't like them. I, I, didn't, I didn't like the middle-class kids. So most of the kids that I, that I would hang out with were the kids that live south of Route 66. And, you know, I, as I stated earlier, I did get involved with the punk rock thing. It was very violent, very anti-establishment. Before it was cool. It's anarchy. Basically. Right. Yeah. Did you commit violence on oh, people? Oh, absolutely. You bat busted heads? Oh, yeah. With baseball bats and chains uh, and pipes? And not baseball bats and chains, steel toe boots, maybe brass knuckles, belts. 
Were you looking for fights? Always. <laughs> so you were an enraged person? Always. Well, you know, it's it's funny uh, that you say enraged because when I think of enraged today, I mean, back then I, I didn't know how to put two and two together. But today uh, I see rage, anger as the underlying causes and conditions of that is usually fear. Of course. Um, and I did not recognize that, of course, as, as a young person. So being involved with that sort of lifestyle, and I wasn't, you know, I was big. I was not necessarily as big as I am. You know, I filled out in my late 20s or in my late teens, early 20s. Was this violence that you talk about, was it against other punk rockers or was it against black people? It was against anyone. <laughs> All right. It was against anyone, other punk rockers from different neighborhoods. Um, however, I will tell you, um, when I was about 17 years old, there was a place that, that the punk rockers used to hang out. And um, one of the places, it was called Okie Dogs. Hmm. It was on Santa Monica Boulevard. And back in the early 80s, that was, you know, Hollywood. We used to go to Hollywood because that's where a lot of the, the concerts were. And um, there was a large and growing gay population. There was a lot of street kids, uh, prostitutes, drug dealers, you, you name it. And we used to hang out at this place that we believed was our... I don't know, our Mecca, our hangout. That's where we would go after concerts. And we used to get in fights with gay kids and street kids. We used to chase them off. And there was one thing that we had in common was we didn't like the fact that, you know, drag queens or young gay hookers were hanging out at our place. And... Um, there was violence on numerous occasions. Now, there was one occasion where I was involved. I was probably involved with more than one, but there's one that I remember specifically where we left a, a young kid in the alley um, beaten. We didn't know whether we had killed him or not. Oh, my God. And, um, you know, we... Because he was gay or right. gay, gay well, prostitute? Yeah. Um, you know, the double fear factor with that one, right? Gay and a prostitute. And a youngster. And we jumped in our cars afterwards and drove back to the suburbs and pretended like it never happened. Uh, which, you know, these days I try to think of who my actions affect. Does it just affect the person who I'm beating up? Does it affect... In any way that I treat somebody else, it can affect their entire family. It can entire their their life, their trauma, or whatever. Um, and I didn't think about it for over 20 years. This is when I'm 17 years old. This is prior to me getting. You were even, 17 when this all happened. Right. This is Man. even before I got involved with really heavy stuff as I got older. Now, I just did not care, and I continued to drink and use. You know, I did try to join the military. They wouldn't take you? They wouldn't take me. Um, one of the main reasons they wouldn't take me was when I was a youngster, and I kind of left this out, um, but I think it's relevant. I got hit by a car when I was eight years old, and it caused one of my legs to be shorter than the other. I was in a body cast for almost a year. Mm. Uh, mommy wrapped me in cotton wool 
Uh, you know, don't don't do sports. Don't you can't do track. You can't do all this other kind of stuff. Um, you know, you have an excuse, Timmy. You know, right. Um, so when I tried to join the military and they wouldn't take me, I was devastated. By this time, I had a mindset. I, I even had friends that called me fascist. Did I know what a fascist was? Probably not truly. Um, you know, there was what they call skinheads and Klux Klan and, and all that sort of thing. Uh, but within the, within the punk scene, we started to see skinheads. Now, when most people think of skinheads, they think what the media tells them. They think uh, all skinheads are white, racial, Nazi, violent thugs. And it's really not, not the case at all. In fact, most people have been sold a major lie through the media the original were skin, you a skinhead i became one you became a skinhead yes and most skinheads if you see a skinhead today unless they have a confederate flag or a swastika on them most of them are fervently anti-racist or don't want anything to do with politics the first skinheads were a mixture between working class uh white kids and jamaicans jamaican immigrants and the most of the music that they listen to is jamaican Based music. Jamaican immigrants. Jamaican music. Black Jamaican, Jamaican yes. immigrants. Yes. We're also skinheads. Yes. I know skinheads. I know Filipino skinheads. I know Hispanic skinheads. No, it's kind of a gang mentality. You want to be belong to something, right? right? And if and if you identify with the same kind of group with the same kind of mental right. outlook and you're angry and you feel like you want to take control in your own violent way, you're gonna join them. Well, the whole thing the whole thing about the whole skinhead thing, see, when I first got involved, the military wouldn't take me. We had just bombed Libya. All my friends were joining the service. I couldn't go. So I thought I was going to fight on the home front. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a, a home front warrior. And it started out patriotic. Uh, it, there was some racial elements to it, uh, but it wasn't, you know, once I got involved, the propaganda that's involved the cult-like mentality that's involved. You're very insulated. You don't trust the other, no matter who it is. Is there a difference between a skinhead and a neo-Nazi? Yes. Were yeah. you either one of them? I said you're a skinhead. Were you a neo-Nazi? Yeah, I was a neo-Nazi skinhead. A neo -Nazi oh, so you combine the terms. Neo-Nazi skinheads would fight with what they call traditional skinheads. <laughs> Traditional skinheads are the ones that like the music and the ska and the reggae and all that other kind of stuff. And they call themselves sharps, skinheads against racial prejudice. And we would fight with them all the time. But the best way to describe the difference between the two is one is completely and utterly walking around with cracked lenses. Which one is the crack lens, the neo-Nazi or yes, the skinhead? The, the, the cracked lenses are the, the neo-Nazis. Neo yeah. In fact, traditional skinheads call racist skinheads boneheads. <laughs> okay. See, a lot of people don't know. A lot I'm of glad there's a morality things. there right. somewhere, a right? People, there's a, a line. A lot of people don't know these differences because right. you know, the news, you know, you had Geraldo Rivera right. getting his nose broken on national television. You had Oprah Winfrey being called a monkey on national television. All this sort of stuff. So that's when most people hear skinhead. That's the first thing they think. And feeding that was this 10-year-old trauma that you experienced, Correct. your brother being shot by a black guy. It just kind of like, it just sparked that in you, I'm, I'm assuming. Was that right? right? Yep. Um, so I got, I jumped in head first. Oh, man. Nobody recruited me. 
I approached them. In fact, oh. I went to uh, North County, San Diego, and um, called up a man by the name of Tom Metzger. Oh, yeah. Remember that man. And next thing you know, I'm sitting in his office, and we're talking politics, and he's telling me all the things, and I'm drinking. In fact, I remember drinking whiskey with him. Okay, so Tom Metzger. Who is this guy? Do you remember that name? Thomas Linton Metzger was an American white supremacist, neo-Nazi skinhead leader, and Klansman. He founded White Aryan Resistance, or WAR, a neo-Nazi organization back in 1983, and was the subject of numerous lawsuits and government investigations. During the 1970s, Metzger joined the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, which was led by David Duke, and he eventually became the Grand Dragon of the State of California. According to Stephen Atkins, author of the Encyclopedia of Right-Wing Extremism in Modern American History, Metzger's ideology differs from other white supremacists by rejecting the basic tenets of the Christian identity movement because he considers himself to be the champion of something called the Third Position. Metzger believed the United States should be divided into designated areas for different racial groups, except Asian Americans, who he thought should be expelled from the U.S. Metzger died in Hemet, California, on November 4th, 2020, at the age of 82. And uh, how old are you now? 24. Okay, 24. All right. 24 years old. Um, what ended up happening with, within the skinhead culture, uh, we, you know, drinking was a thing. Drugs was not a thing, you know, which a lot of people scratch their head because they see these people on meth and they think, you know, that there is that element does still exist. But the groups that I associated with, if they even smoked marijuana, they got beat down because the whole premise was drugs are for non-white people. And if the white race is to survive, we must abstain from consuming poisonous things i mean there's even dietary rules in some of these groups so back to tom metzger right so um in the late 1980s i was involved in a uh a racial attack it was a benefit for the homeless concert <laughs> but you're just a great guy well but <laughs> us skinheads we knew that there would be left-wingers at this benefit for the homeless concert so we showed up and started causing mayhem and we ended up getting kicked out as we were leaving, there was a Middle Eastern couple. One thing led to another. Somebody was giving somebody hard looks. Racial epithets were said. And next thing you know, we're in a brawl. And next thing you know, I wake up in jail. Mm -hmm. Front page on the face on the front page of the L.A. Times and on CNN and all that fun stuff. And ended up going on trial. And most people would find themselves in that situation and say you know check themselves what am i doing what sort of life am i living here um but if anything it catapulted me even further into that movement and and that mindset well that's because i was led to believe that it was the jewish conspiracy a jewish judge jewish lawyer jewish media propaganda who, who the, told you all that this is involved with the propaganda that's what we're inside the the neo-nazi correct. realm correct the jews run the world yeah, yeah yeah you know all that all that kind of stuff mom and dad bailed me out uh, one thing daddy never told me was he loved me but his way of telling me that he loved me this sounds kind of weird he bought me a bulletproof vest because we had a lot of people wanting to get us because we were all over the tv 
if that's not a macho thing, you know, I don't know what else is, but it's kind of ironic. So I'm, I'm out on bail. You know, I'm a celebrity, skinhead, you know, prisoner of war. I'm on trial for my political beliefs. Inside the skinhead community, were you kind of elevated? Right. Were you kind of like, oh, Correct. he's our rock star skinhead well, dude? In my, in my head, I was. I don't know if I truly was. Right. But my ego was, you know. You're you know, badass. I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm a bad. Well, during the, during the confrontation, I held a shopping cart above my head and threw it at a crowd of people. I had baseball bats that I didn't use. Thank God I didn't use them because I had used them earlier that weekend when I was drunk mm. um, on some other people. Yeah. It sort of started me thinking, at least on the not drinking situation, that and the fact that Tom Metzger told me, called me into his office one day, like going to the principal's office, right? He says, you know, you have great leadership qualities. You're an intelligent young man. We need people like you. However, your drinking can be a security issue. He didn't make it a personal thing. You know, my father would tell me, you're a drunk, you're a lush, right. you know, get a job, whatever. He didn't do any of that. He made it, it was an obstacle for you having greater success in the neo-Nazi skinhead Correct. movement. Correct. Or being an effective weapon and leader correct within the the unit so to speak correct and i ended up quitting drinking i i remember my sponsor the sponsor who i chose ironically was a hispanic guy from east la i thought he was smooth i thought he was cool um and i didn't remember this but he had recently probably within the last couple of years told me he said if you want me to sponsor you you need to shake there was a black man in the meeting he says you need to go shake that black man's hand and I did it. You know, prior to that, that wouldn't happen. And if it did happen, I would kind of wipe my hand off on my leg or something afterwards. Because, you know, who knows, there might be, the black might, you know, be germs or something. I mean, that's how my mind thought at that time. So you were still... Slightly, yes. You you, you still had Racial. resentment and, and anger issues. And fear. And fear of the African-American race. Sure. Totally unwarranted. Of course. And I thought I was going to get transferred from one county to another before I started doing my other time, and it didn't happen. They let me out for a week. I didn't drink, but I will tell you, it was 4th of July weekend, and Huntington Beach, where most of my friends were hanging out, we were involved with a lot of violence. I figured, what, what do I got to lose? What am I going to do? Throw me in jail? I'm already going. You know, I got lucky in that they did not have hate crime laws at that time. Today, you would be in prison. Yes. In fact, I have very close associates who have spent, you know, uh, over a decade in jail because of similar sort of activities. In jail or in prison? In prison. It's a whole different right. run. It's a whole right. different stretch. However, I did go to the worst county jail, if, if it's possible. Uh, they put me in Supermax. In L.A. County? Yeah, which is basically a prison. One, one of the things that I like to tell people is when I was in jail, not one of my so-called racial brothers or sisters put money on my books, wrote me a letter. Yeah, they abandoned you. Out of sight, out of mind. Right. And so when I first got out, I was a little bit angry. I just avoided them. And then I started getting phone calls. He's been out for such and such amount of time. How come he's not? The first thing, you know, from my perspective... When we had situations like that, the first thing in our mind is snitch. There must be a rat. So I said, well, I don't want them to think I'm a rat because I'm not a rat. 
Never have been a rat. You didn't turn anybody in? No, never You didn't have. turn over names and addresses nope. and phone numbers never, and never, locations? Never. never would. Clubhouse uh, and, locations? And I've been asked. I've been asked by FBI agents. Yeah, I bet. Can I ask you why you never done it? Because obviously now you're a different person. Right. So why did you not do it? Why did it's you just not... a code. It's just a code. But wouldn't it be and the part right of it is, thing? And part of it is fear, too, because you know, snitches get stitches and uh, bullets and things like that. Right. Um, so that's partially a part of it, too. I was one of the only sober ones in the in the group. I mean, they drank. And nowadays, there's a lot of sober people involved with that lifestyle. They call it straight edge. So how did you get out of it? What was the turning point? What was the inspiration to turn from this effed up ideology that black people are bad and threatening and they're going to, I got to kill them before they kill me kind of attitude? You know, I like to, a lot of people think it's some big mystery sort of thing, but I think it's human nature, human development. You know, I was already a late bloomer as it was, but most people, including myself, once they get Late 20s, early 30s, they've just gotten out of the military. They've got a divorce. They've just gotten out of prison. They've spent their entire 20s drinking and partying. And they kind of look around and say, you know, uh, what, what do I do here? I have to start being a responsible person. In my case, I met a young lady as I was passing out hate literature, granted, in Huntington Beach, um, we had a child. With this child, like three years old, I'm in the grocery store with him. And there was all kinds of little things. This kid knew how to say Heil Hitler. He knew how to give the Sig Heil salute. <gasps> three years old, Heil Hitler, yep. the salute, yep. the whole thing. Yep. Uh, Did he have a little uh, brown shirt? No, he didn't. He had, he had brown shorts, though, <laughs> quite often. Little swastika? No, but did you have like swastika well, we had stuff in your house? Flag. Oh yeah, in your house? Yeah, guns, all all kinds of stuff. Man, so I'm in the grocery store with this kid, and he sees a large black man in the store, and he pointed it out. Said, "Look, Daddy, there's a big black," and blurted out the N word. It that didn't shock me. As much as, well, first of all, all the other shoppers in there, like mostly like middle-aged women, were saying, how dare you? Uh, how could you teach a child? That sort of thing. One of the things that I remember him asking was, aren't you going to beat them up, Daddy? Man. Which is like, wow. This three-year-old kid thinks it's okay to go beating up just anybody, Right. But um, it's not unreasonable for him to expect that no, because that's what you that's exactly everything that was to. right was wrong and everything that was wrong was right. This kid was being taught the opposite. So that resonated with me. Um, you know, it wasn't like I woke up one day and said, Heil Hitler. What did your wife think about I'm you? A father. You're a father, but what did your wife think about you indoctrinating your, your kid this way? Didn't she push back and say this is bullshit? Not at all, because she was right there with me. Man. She was right there with me. There's been times when, before my son was born, she was wearing camouflage and rolling around in the dirt and doing paramilitary training and all that sort of stuff as well. And we were both sober. And and this, is, up, this is a sober, conscious mind state that both you and your wife are in. Well, my I remember telling people the three most important things in my life were sobriety, my family, and the survival of my race. And it's crazy. 
It's really crazy. Your son has this incident in the store. Then what happened? You, you don't just wake up one day and say, oh, I'm out. I do believe that sobriety played a major role in the fog lifting. Um, but even more so, most of us have been treated with kindness, compassion, respect by our perceived enemy. And in my case, I traveled quite a, quite a lot for work. You ever go down south? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm living in an area where it's known Ku Klux Klan type activities. I never liked the Ku Klux Klan. Even when I was a skinhead, never liked the Ku Klux Klan. Didn't like their weird religious beliefs. Didn't like their pointy hats. <laughs> I call them dunce caps. Uh, and that would be correct. What really penetrated my mind was I had a black supervisor who kept on inviting me over for what he called Sunday supper. And I kept on coming up with excuses. I said, well, I don't drink and, you know. So finally he called me into his office and he says, I've invited you over for supper several times and you keep on coming up with lame excuses. You know, what's going on? And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, uh-oh, somebody told him. Somebody told him my past. Somebody told him, you know, I'm goose-stepping and all this other kind of white power, right-wing stuff. But in my mind, I was going to do it specifically to put food on my family's table. Yeah, to get him off your back. To get him off my back. Right. So I'm going to go behind enemy lines. (laughs) That's what you thought? You're going to go behind enemy lines? Correct. And in my mind, black folks is, you know, cocaine, Crips, Bloods, uh, Cadillacs. Uh, and it's down south, so they got to live in a podunk shack, right, with broken windows. All the stereotypes. All the stereotypes. Right. Go to this man's house, nothing like that. Didn't have a Cadillac. Had a big old truck. And knocked on the door, and this little kid answered the door in a suit. No tie, because I guess they had already done their other stuff. Their, their Sunday church, church. yeah, right. yeah. Probably were Southern Baptist or something. I don't know. And, yeah. and they invited me into their house. The little kid was all, hello, sir, you must be Tim. And... And it was awkward because I have all these thoughts in my head, like what's going on with all the stereotypes that I've been told. Would it be fair to say that you were, in fact, a racist at that time? I would, yeah, probably, yes, but I would not have called myself a skinhead. Sat down, had a spicy southern Louisiana meal. So I took that experience, and then I would go home to Ku Klux Klan land where the sky is falling. You know, oh my God, they're taking over here. They're taking, I'm like, what are you complaining about? You got nothing but woods around you. Me and my son's mother were just not compatible anymore. So you were changing, she was not. And, and far, your son was, I was not. concerned, yeah. Because and, you were traveling for work, right. you were away from them. Right. You were growing, maturing, realizing the truth and what you believed in was bullshit. Your family was not. Correct. And you know what's really strange is I would come here to work in Southern California, and the racism in Southern California was worse. It than, is. It than can it was, be. Yes. Than it was down south. It can be absolutely against Latinos and everything else. Every, you know, it seems like uh, out here everybody is nice to your face, but behind your back it's a different story. At least down south, you know when somebody doesn't like you. You know when a black person doesn't want to be around a white person and vice versa. You can. It's just apparent it's i don't know it's like unwritten thing but so me and my my son's mother ended up splitting up by this time i'm you know going to bars not drinking but going to like 
I don't know, meet Mark. I'm single, right? You I'm, go to the club looking yeah, for I'm, I'm action. Going, yeah, I'm going to the club. Um, but there was one occasion where somebody said, oh, this person likes you, this person likes you, this person likes you. And there's a little redhead from Texas. And she was cute and she's petite. And I kind of like them like that. And I got a thing for redheads too. So <laughs> um, I went on a double date with her and a friend of mine from England. And we started to hit it off. We've gone on a couple dates by this time, and I'm walking her to the door, and you know I'm I'm pulling all the moves, trying to you know trying to get in there and look good in her graces and stuff. And uh, she says, uh, you know, before we get too serious, I want you to know, I'm Jewish. Do you have a problem with that? <laughs> Another stereotype blown mm-hmm. out the door. My idea of Jewish people was, you know. Hasidic Jews, yeah. New York City, diamonds, money, media, all, all a bunch of negative stuff. Not a girl with a cute red head from Texas. And a twang. And um, we've been married for 20, 24 years. She's put up with a lot. She's never seen me drink. My son's never seen me drink. Your um, eyes are tearing up. Why are your eyes tearing up? They're not tearing up. Yes, they are. Come on, you now. big tough skinhead <laughs> neo-Nazi. You, you're, you're crying. I'm a big marshmallow. <laughs> I always have been. I can tell that you, this this part of your life is something that's very special to yeah. you. I learn more about people from breaking bread with them. Of course. That's why I'm doing this whole right. podcast. Right. This whole podcast is on that yep. same wavelength of if we could just sit down as human beings and have conversations hard conversations over comfort food in a nice setting and just see each other eye to eye, none of this bullshit that's going on would be going on. Right. People don't talk to one another anymore. And there's a level of grace you have to extend to people. Sure. And without it, it, we're, we're doomed. Yep. And unfortunately, a lot of people are distracted by... You know, they come home from work, they turn on the television, and they have the womp, 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 the, the idiot box tell them what to think. My question to you now is, having had this life experience of living a life of hate and violence and wanting to destroy your perceived enemies, right. black people, Jews, people doesn't who... Matter. Doesn't matter. I hated white people more than anybody, believe it or not. Did you really? Oh, yeah, because they didn't think like I did. I said, don't you see what's happening? Interesting. Yeah. So, what do you think of the cycle of what's going on in this country now? I think they're, just like I just said, they're all distracted. They have a short memory. There's a short news cycle. Everything's quick, 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 and then we all forget. They pre- if you watch television or even listen to some people, they forget what happened two weeks ago. And then the algorithms of all the social media just keep feeding that cycle because that gets the most clicks, yep. the most hits. It's almost like people are they're craving to be angry at something. It doesn't matter what it is, as long as they're distracted from themselves. So based on your experience and and the horrible, shitty parts of your life that you've been, thank God, able to transform into a positive end. And that takes work. It takes work. You have to work on yourself, right? Correct. And for you, it was a a 12-step recovery program, but you were also, I'm perceiving, willing to open your eyes to see a different side of humanity, people who are different than you. Different culturally, different religious perspectives. Correct. Whether it's Muslim or whatever. You just see them as human beings and not, oh, well, they're different than me, so I have to. You know, something that really, I was involved with like the atheist type people. It's called the World Church of the Creator. 
it's all about humanism and religion is a means by which to control the masses and, and all that other kind of stuff. But my sponsor told me, go meditate anyhow. Just go do it. And it was weird. But like anything that you've never done before, it's weird. Just like sitting down with your perceived enemy. At first, it's uncomfortable. And then once you start to relax, it's it becomes more tolerable. Well, I, I took that 11-step move, prayer and meditation, to another level. It got to the point where the 12-step meditation stuff wasn't enough there's other recovery groups that are like buddhist buddhist based and i found that most of them are people with long-term recovery who are working two programs but combining the two together and you know like at a 12-step uh, meditation meeting it's like 20 minutes tops i was meditating for like two hours three hours with some of these folks uh, but i take a little bit of everything and combine it together because there's got it there's why do they exist in the first place? There's got, they have to have something positive about them. There's a lot of negative in religion, too. Well, I would say, in my opinion, is it's about a relationship with something greater Correct. than yourself. Religion is all gets all fucked up because yep. of man. This is man true. is in the middle of it, and that's what screws it up. Yep. So you take man out of the equation, and you have work on a relationship with a higher power, whether you believe it's God or nature or Mother Nature, whatever it is. It's or the group. Or the group that's just outside of your own power and control and seems to be working a lot better i do i so i do a lot of meditation well that's great so your life today when you look back at your life before skinhead neo-nazi all that kind of stuff do you do you have any guilt or shame or have you let that go well what had happened was there was a the person who i had beat up when i was 17 years old ended up working with me at the museum of tolerance no and one thing led to another. Um, this is the gay prostitute? Yep. The gay prostitute yep. in Hollywood or yep. West Hollywood that you beat up and left for dead. You met up with him at the Museum of Tolerance. And he was my supervisor. <laughs> if that's, that's not a, a higher power, I don't know. I totally agree with that. <laughs> and how did you reconcile? Did you reconcile? We did reconcile, but, you know, we had worked together for probably six months to a year before we realized who each other were. Wow. We had sat down and had a conversation. We were breaking bread. Wow. And we were talking about our past and whatnot, and one thing led to another, and we figured out who each other were. Now, of course, as a, as a person in recovery, my first response is when we're wrong, we promptly admit it. Took a while. Took about a week. Next time I saw him, I apologized. I didn't know, I didn't know what the outcome was going to be. It really wasn't any of my business. And we've been friends and doing. In fact, we just did presentations uh, weekend before last at a uh, at a uh, juvenile detention facility up in the Bay Area. So we still work together. We've done documentaries That's together. That's amazing. It's really strange because we've both seen each other go through sort of uh, hard times, but we both come out better people. That's an amazing yeah story. He's like a family member to me. Wow. God bless you for making that work. That's just, oh, man, I got like chicken skin over that one. <laughs> That's great. And so I've heard this term. You take your mess and you become the messenger. You feel that's what you're doing now? You Do you try to talk to young people about their direction and their thinking? And I do. Uh, you know, that's why that's why I spoke at the juvenile right, detention right. center. And I spoke at a couple of schools as well. 
I used to do presentations every week. Wow, that's great. But I'm starting to slow down now. I'm getting low, getting a little bit older, and there's other people like me who can do the same thing who I think need to, the opportunity I, to do so. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things that I, it's just like alcoholism. I don't believe you could shake the hate out of anybody. They have to do it on their own, and they have to come to their own uh, moments of clarity, their process. Every person is different. I am praying for this nation. Because we are a hateful nation right now, Yes, in my opinion. We are angry everywhere. We hate what we don't understand. We hate what we don't you know, necessarily believe in. You know, It's okay to disagree, but to hate something or another person because they think differently. Right. We're just... Or vote differently or whatever. It's just getting batshit crazy out there yeah. right now. And so I'm praying for this nation, and I, it gives me hope that people like you can find a pathway out. And I'm so glad that we can share your story on this podcast that hopefully somebody who may be struggling with some of these things can think about it. But as you say, it's you have to find it within yourself to want to change. Because I, I will say, even from my own life experience, carrying around resentment and anger and being mad at, at, at the outside world all the time is exhausting. It never leads. Absolutely. It never leads to anything positive, and you just become the maker of your own misery. You know, one of the one of the things you know, we want to change the world. People say, "We, how do you change the world? How do you change the world?" Well, it's not going to be done in mass. It starts with you. Yes. It Starts with you first. Yeah. Yep. You, my perception and the way that I react or respond to certain situations makes or breaks the whole situation. I know when to walk away. Yeah. Let them stay in their lane or whatever. Um, I just had a, an incident recently uh, where I had somebody confront me about something or whatever. Yeah, I didn't really know them or anything. And I just walked away. I don't. My pride is not. My ego is not built up to the point where. I'm not to say that I don't have an ego and they don't have pride, but right. um, I'm not going to waste my headspace. Yeah. With something that I have no control over. Right. Right. Well. Tim, God bless you. Thank you. Wow. I'm just blown away by that story. And the only thing I can say to you, a former skinhead and neo-Nazi, is mazel tov. <laughs> Thank you, sir. All right. If you think you have an issue with alcohol, narcotics, gambling, sex, eating, or something else, you can visit organizations like aa.org for alcoholics, na.org for narcotics, gamblersanonymous.org, obviously for a gambling problem, saa-recovery.org or slaafws.org for sex and love addiction, to name a few. And I'll post all of these websites on my podcast page at thedinerverse.com. And that wraps up another episode. A big, huge thank you to Cosmos Bistro in Glendora, California, the pride of the foothills. Learn more about them at CosmosBistroGlendora.com. That's all one word. Theme music by Keith Brock and the Kings Who Rock. Across the Dinerverse, always searching for the heart and soul of America, one diner at a time. I'm John Murphy. What's your story? <laughs>